Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The Senate, on an overwhelmingly bipartisan vote, passed its $886 billion version of the National Defense Authorization Act, starting the conference process. This, as the appropriations process remains uncertain, as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy discusses launching an impeachment investigation into President Biden. Ukraine launched its big offensive, but U.S. officials are uncertain as to its scope and goals as Russia races to destroy Ukrainian grain supplies. Quinn Gang has been unceremoniously jettisoned as foreign minister after a month-long disappearance replaced by his predecessor, Wang Yi, and the Biden administration has blocked Hong Kong chief executive and former security boss John Lee from attending a conference of leaders from across the Asia-Pacific in San Francisco, and Bibi Netanyahu and his allies have moved to strip the Supreme Court of its oversight powers, threatening to destroy the unity of the Jewish state. Joining us today to discuss the week in Washington and beyond are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, now with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the Transatlantic uh, Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome back uh, to uh, the program. Uh, Dove, we especially uh, appreciate it because you're going to have to go a little bit early, so we'll we'll talk about Israel and everything else a little bit earlier uh, right after Michael finishes his speech. And I should note now with the House and Senate out of session, Michael Herson sadly will not be joining us uh, for the next uh, several weeks. So Michael, I know that uh, we will distribute Kleenex or suggest that everybody in the audience reach for their Kleenex now uh, because they're, they're not, they're not going to hear your dulcet tones for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> I appreciate that very much, Vago. Thank you. Uh, in, in, indeed. And you're on a well-deserved, uh, well-deserved family vacation. Okay. So uh, speaking of well-deserved family vacation, uh, at least the Senate did pass uh, its $886 billion version of the NDAA. It passed Uh, As you predicted, Michael, in spectacular bipartisan fashion, 88 to 11, uh, that sets up a collision with a very uh, partisan uh, NDAA from uh, the House. What are the key elements that are different? Because these are sort of night and day measures, right? I mean, all this, the... The, the, the social BSery that's in the uh, House version is not in the Senate version, uh, but it is going to cause a clash. What are the biggest clashes going to be over? And why is this time different from all other times? There's a sense that this clash is a very different clash than the one we've been seeing over the last couple of years. Well, I mean, look, it's Friday, so let's start, start on a happy note. I think it's a, a, a major accomplishment that the Senate did pass its NDAA by such an overwhelming uh, bipartisan majority. And, you know, we've had a lot of this spending and chaos in the House and the chaos over the debt ceiling and this debt ceiling legislation. Uh, it's, there's a lot of downside to it, but the upside is it's really forced the Senate to do its job. This is the first time NDAA has seen floor action in, I think, about six years. Uh, and we'll talk about appropriations later. It's the first time uh, since 2018 that the, the Senate has passed all 12 of its appropriations bills uh, by July in, in five years. Uh, so, you know, uh, the, the Senate process uh, worked very well. They considered a bunch of amendments this week. Um, and I think a lot of the controversial ones were, were turned down in the Senate. I mean, for example, a, a, an amendment to designate a lead inspector general for Ukraine uh, was defeated. Uh, there was a, an amendment offered by Senator Cruz that would have prevented the Pentagon from implementing another COVID-19 vaccine mandate uh, and paved the way for reinstating troops who were let go from the military for refusing to get the shot. That was defeated. Uh, there was a an amendment by Bernie Sanders uh, to cut the uh, NDAA uh, budget by 10%. Uh, and that lost overwhelmingly as well. Only 11 people voted for it. But it's interesting, though, that that Senator Chris Murphy voted for that amendment. He's on the Defense Appropriations Committee. Uh, Chris Van Hollen voted for that amendment, who's on the Appropriations Committee. And of course, Elizabeth Warren of the Armed Services Committee uh, also uh, supported that amendment. But, you know, the, the Senate bill um, still has some, you know, uh, wins as far as the culture wars go for the Republicans. I mean, there is some uh, language in the, the Senate bill that prohibits the Pentagon from creating positions or filling vacancies relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion until the GAO issues a report on the Pentagon's workforce for these programs, and it caps the salaries 
for personnel uh, who deal with diversity uh, and inclusion issues. And you know, I've talked to Republicans on the House side, and they know that the the major differences that you point out you know, dealing with the culture wars, most of those provisions are going to get tossed uh, in conference. Uh, and uh, But they do need a few wins on DEI. And I think this Senate provision gives them one. I think there will be uh, a few others. So I'm still optimistic uh, that uh, NDAA will get conferenced and, and will get passed um, sometime uh, before the end of the year. Uh, and I think another big difference between the bills, too, is that the Senate bill even though this is non-binding, it does have a statement in there that warns that the $886 billion uh, defense spending limit that's set by the debt ceiling deal is not sufficient and urges the president to request emergency supplemental funding for Ukraine, munitions production, and, and other necessities, which is a you know, great transition into where we are you know, with appropriations. Uh, you know, The Freedom Caucus continues to cause some chaos this week, but it's not just the Freedom Caucus that's uh, creating problems on appropriations. Uh, Congressman Kevin Hearn from Oklahoma, who is the chairman of the Republican Study Committee, and that's the largest Republican organization uh, in the House. He sent out a letter to his colleagues saying that the Senate recently put forth a plan to pass appropriations bills that effectively violates the statutory caps, ca caps on discretionary spending that was set in the Fiscal Responsibility Act. And he goes to remind everybody that House passage of the Limit, Save, Grow Act and more recently the NDAA demonstrate that we can pass conservative bills with Republican-only votes, and appropriations should be no different, and he urges his colleagues to remain steadfast in defending the House position. Now, on top of that, you know, we've seen how the, the Freedom Caucus was very unhappy with the debt deal, even though I think the Democrats made extraordinary concessions to agree to spending uh, limits at, at the FY23 levels. Uh, but as we saw, they held up the floor. McCarthy agreed now that House bills be marked up to the FY22 levels. And the House was hoping to proceed with two of their appropriations bills this week, the Milcon VA bill and the agriculture bill. Right. However, the Freedom Caucus had decided that they want to move the needle yet again. They want an additional $115 billion in cuts, in addition to, uh, so even lower than the FY22 numbers. Um, they wanted $7 billion alone cut out of the agriculture bill, which really ended up scuttling uh, consider consideration of the agriculture bill. But they were able to consider and pass uh, the Milcon VA bill, uh, and which will really allow them to go home to their districts over this next six-week break to talk about the things they're doing to support uh, our veterans. Uh, and that was really a touch and go for a while. And that was because you know the appropriators and leadership pushed back uh, on on the Freedom Caucus. But uh, it, it's far from over. Uh, we we you know we only have a very short period of time in September until uh, funding runs out, and I think the chances for a shutdown remain very high. And we have members of the Freedom Caucus coming out saying, for example, Bob Good, who we've talked about on the show several times, said just this week, we should not fear a government shutdown. Most of what we do here is bad anyway. And Scott Perry, who chairs the House Freedom Caucus, said uh, we are going to win on spending in September. So um, very uh, long way to go uh, and a very short period of time to get there when we get back in September. Wow, that was uh, channeling a uh, uh, 1970s uh, trucker uh, song from uh, Smokey and the Bandit. Well done. Didn't think didn't think we'd be going there. Um, uh, so uh, just uh, very quickly, um, you know, Mitch McConnell um, had a, a bit of a vapor uh, lock. Uh, unfortunately, he'd uh, taken a tumble some uh, uh, months uh, ago and some questions about his health, obviously, like a lot of octogenarians who are leading uh, Congress now. There's a lot of debate about that. Diane Feinstein was out for a long time, uh, sort of slowing down votes. He is somebody who has a disproportionate impact because he has been so masterful at driving forward the entire um, uh, GOP uh, agenda, even if he's accused uh, regularly of being somewhat nefarious in doing so, for example, his unprecedented actions. Uh, to uh, secure uh, the majority on the Supreme Court that's managed to d deliver a lot of the political outcomes conservatives have thought uh, sought for decades. What does this suggest in terms of leadership if Mitch McConnell is, because he is somebody who can both cooperate very effectively with Chuck Schumer or derail the entire process, depending on what he's trying to accomplish and why? Well, look, I think the process that we have been talking about and that's most important to us uh, for the remainder of the year is something that Mitch McConnell cares deeply about and does not want to derail. Uh, now, look, privately, there are some concerns about his uh, his health, especially not just after what happened in the press conference, but his previous falls uh, that he's had. Uh, but, you know, we've seen this with other uh, members of the House and Senate as well in the past. But uh, I've talked to several senior um, uh, Republicans in the leadership 
who said they met with McConnell that day and he was totally fine. Um, so he is going to remain a force and, and, and his colleagues in the Senate want him to. They need, they, they've said privately and publicly that they need him to lead on defense spending and they need him to lead when it comes to uh, funding uh, Ukraine. And I think also a lot of the folks that are not very excited about uh, Donald Trump's candidacy or also want McConnell to stay uh, firm, same place, because, you know, he's one that, uh, you know, the former president has taken a lot of shots, not only at him personally, but also at his wife. And uh, we, you know, I think there's a, a lot of hope that McConnell can uh, fulfill his term as, as leader. And I don't see any reason why he won't. Uh, and uh, that was Elaine Chow, obviously. And the most most bizarre part of that is she served uh, in uh, the, the Trump administration as transportation secretary. Um, l- let me just ask you about Tommy uh, Tuberville. Um, you know, his holds uh, continue. He is completely immovable. Why would he be right? I mean, he also claims he's not really uh, doing this. And as usual, the Pentagon is doing and the administration are making it work. This is a lot like sequestration, right? We're picking the vices, at, you know, in order to occupy uh, the jobs of uh, the chiefs make it easy, make a streamlined uh, transition. And so actually a little bit like what we saw during sequestration, if you all make it work, it's very hard to say the ceiling is falling down and we can't get everything done. There are those who also argue, look, I mean, at this point, it's, it's really time to take this privilege away. It's a convention that exists. It's, it's not something that's hard and fast in, in law. How does this pay out, uh, play out in Dove? You, know, you wrote about this many weeks ago. We've been discussing this for very many months. Michael, start us off, and then Dove, I want to get your uh, sense on this as well. Well, look, uh, after the Senate passed the NDAA, they they, they, uh, went to some other business, which I'll talk about in a second, but they did adjourn now. Uh, The Senate, I think, is adjourned for five weeks, and the House is now out for uh, for six weeks. And, uh, you know, there's no deal uh, still to end Tupperville's holds, and we're approaching nearly 300 uh, people that are being held up. Um, and Republicans are now also publicly saying that this is becoming a problem uh, for them, in addition, a political problem, in addition to the problem that's causing uh, the military. Uh, but there are no active negotiations going on. Uh, and it's really unusual because really in that lead up to the August recess is when these things start to get wrapped up. Uh, Tuberville spoke uh, with Lloyd Austin, I think, twice last week, but there's been no uh, communication since. And Schumer has ruled out using any floor time to consider these promotions. Uh, you know, I think we've talked about before under, under Senate rules, it would take more than three months to confirm each of the outstanding military promotions with senators voting eight hours a day and not right. considering uh, any other business. So, you know, I think what Schumer's hope right is right now, and I think some of the other Senate colleagues, is that pressure is going to mount on Tupperville uh, during the month of August uh, and that they hope that they can come to some kind of resolution when people come back uh, in September. Uh, however, you know, there was some good news when it comes to the holds on State Department uh, nominees. Uh, late last night, the Senate did confirm uh, over a dozen U.S. ambassadors uh, because a deal was struck with Rand Paul to lift some of his holds. Uh, we also mentioned, too, that J.D. Vance has some sporadic holds on ambassadors and State Department nominees. He is now issuing a woke questionnaire to anybody who's being nominated uh, for State Department posts. And depending on how they answer his woke questionnaire will determine whether he's going to let them proceed or try and place a hold on their nomination. So, uh, you know. Two steps forward, one step backward, but uh, it is. Uh, I'm still hopeful that this Tupperville situation will be resolved. And I know that his House colleagues are starting to lean on him as well. They've just got to be able to find an off ramp for him. Uh, Dove, uh, your sense? Well, first of all, people need to realize it isn't all that smooth if you have the vice chief acting as chief, simply because think of a corporation, a huge corporation, which all the departments, the service departments are. Uh, or rather the services are, and you have the CEO acting as COO and CEO or COO acting as CEO. That's what's going on here. Um, And to manage all of that, people don't understand what the workload is like for both the chief and the vice chief. And now you're dumping both jobs on one person. That is a hell of a lot, much too much. The thing about uh, appointing the vice chief and the vice chief, chief, chief of naval operations for the top jobs is that they can hold those jobs for 210 days without a problem. And hopefully the idea is that uh, at that point, Senator Tupperville is going to give in, uh, which he probably will for all the reasons Mike gave. But again, to think that this is so smooth, this is not like the sequestration problem where Bob Hale, my, my successor, Uh, was able to move monies around and get things going when you're talking about a huge operation. Here you're talking about 
one person doing two massive jobs. That is just much too much. Uh, I uh, would agree with you uh, on that. And uh, Eric Smith is uh, the... Um, and Eric uh, Smith the same. Uh, well, and he's joked about it, right? He's like, look, I get to do two jobs, but I get twice the pay. Oh, no, I don't. Um, so uh, that was a little bit of uh, tongue in cheek. And he said that he's uh, honored uh, to be able to do uh, the job uh, that he's in fact doing. Uh, just real uh, quick, a word from our sponsors. HII sponsors are Global Coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Sponsors are Strategy Coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications. Sponsors are Command and Control Coverage and GE Aerospace. Sponsors are air and naval uh, coverage. Uh, Dove, um, you know, uh, let me the... give you, uh, Vago, let me give you a, give our listeners a concrete example of what I'm talking about. Sure. Service chiefs do a lot of what's called counterpart meetings with their counterparts around the world. How can a, a person who's holding both jobs down manage the operations of the service while running around the world at the same time? Boy, is that hard. Uh, you you can't uh, you you certainly can't be in two places uh, at at once. Um, uh, let me ask you about the, one of the key elements in the Senate is Tammy uh, Senator Tammy Baldwin's uh, proposal. Uh, I would argue it's one of the latest misguided uh, efforts uh, on uh, Buy American requiring 65% of all parts on Navy ships to be mined, produced, or manufactured in the United States by 2026, 75% by 28, and 100% by 2023. We're effectively now in a world conflict. Um, taking our important allies and partners off the table or just increasing our costs is not the way to do this now. We've got to be bringing as many of our friends and partners in, buying as much stuff directly from them if we're going to grow our fleet, grow our air forces, uh, grow our ground forces to deliver the kind of capabilities we need to our allies and partners. Exactly how toxic and bad is this idea as somebody who was in the seat during uh, 9-11 and, and in the time after where you were negotiating with people around the world and, and actually brushing aside as many Buy American provisions as you could in order to be able to get needs met as quickly as possible. Well, I was trying to get money and supplies for both our operations in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I suspect if this kind of a bill had passed then, I would have had a lot of doors slammed in my face. Look, for a long, long time, there's been a huge discussion about the fact that the, the trade in defense is heavily, heavily in our favor already. And people like Senator Nunn years ago tried to legislate that we would essentially not say everything is not that's not invented here is no good and that we would buy some things from some of our allies now. I have an awful lot of time for Senator Baldwin. I have to say that. But nevertheless, I think you're right. This is misguided. This is absolutely the wrong time to tell the allies, we're not going to buy your stuff at the same time as we're asking them to supply Ukraine and to essentially increase their spending on something that is not for their domestic purposes, which quite frankly is a, a culture shock for them. So while uh, I sympathize with what she's trying to do, I think it, the timing is terrible. And I think that uh, she, it really needs to be thought through a lot more carefully. We want to have a decent two-way trade. We love to sell our stuff. We love people to buy our stuff. But nevertheless, we've got to recognize that we can no longer act unilaterally. We need those allies. This is not the Cold War where allies were simply an add-on. We need them. We don't have enough ships, planes, or, or even army divisions. We need them, and we cannot have them if, indeed, we're going to tell them we're not going to buy your stuff. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And even during the Cold War, we really needed our allies uh, and, and partners uh, as well. And, uh, you know, and, and we're also making, asking them, uh, some of them, to actually make some very dramatic sacrifices uh, with the Chinese that are going to have implications as well. And so then dinging them uh, on defense trade would, would seem to be very, very counterproductive. Let me uh, ask you, but go ahead if you have a last point on that, and then I want yeah. to try to get to Israel before you've got to jump. Sure. sure, and I want to make it clear, I'm not just talking about Europe here. I'm, you're absolutely right, and I think Patrick will support this. We buy stuff from our Asian friends as well, and that this is absolutely the wrong time with China acting the way it's acting 
just almost as bad as the way the, the Russians are acting for us to do this to our Asian partners. I mean, this is across the world that we have a problem with some. Uh, in, indeed. Let me take you to the uh, question of Israel after an enormous uh, number of unprecedented protests uh, across uh, Israel. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and his allies pressed ahead on the vote that they said uh, was uh, coming. They passed the sweeping, uh, effectively uh, dismantlement or, or reduction of the influence in uh, the uh, Supreme Court based on uh, the reasonableness uh, metric. Uh, that a country without a written constitution has long used. Many people suspect that one of the reasons for this is the Supreme Court has a tendency of putting the brakes on things, settlement activity, for example, or uh, you may be uh, an Israeli prime minister uh, who may have committed criminal acts and so wants to make sure that he doesn't get punished, which is what every autocrat uh, tries to do, whether they're in the United States or anywhere else. What's the impact of this? Because now there's sort of a pause period this has fractured relations with the United States. Joe Biden has repeatedly said, try to do this with consensus. Everybody agrees the judicial system needs to have some degree of reform. Try to do this through consensus. That was a message that was delivered to Isaac Herzog, the president who was here uh, last week. What's your sense on how this plays out and how divisive and destructive it's going to be and the implications over the long term? Because this is alienating the American Jewish community, even if Netanyahu and, and his crowd believes actually that's irrelevant. The most important thing is the American evangelical community that is uh, that that this administration has decided is more important to Israel than the American Jewish vote. Well, a number of things. First, the uh, Supreme Court decided that it was not going to uh, issue an injunction to stop this. Uh, on the other hand, it said it was there have been a number of lawsuits already and it's and uh, the uh, regarding the legislation and the Supreme Court has said it's going to review the uh, at least some of the suits, essentially review the legislation, but they're not going to do anything till after the Jewish holidays are over. And and frankly, uh, a lot of folks don't realize they don't end with Yom Kippur. They end with the Feast of Tabernacles, which is called Sukkot, and that runs until October 6th. So we're essentially talking about two months where there's going to be a lot of negotiation. Now, Netanyahu went on American TV to say this is no big deal. I'm not going to go and and uh go crazy, et cetera, et cetera. But remember, in this regard, he's uh, somewhat similar to a man he'd hate to be compared to, which is Yasser Arafat, who would say one thing in English and another thing in Arabic. Uh, Netanyahu is pretty much doing the same thing, telling Americans one thing, but telling his uh, Israeli buddies something quite different. Now, uh, what ultimately could happen uh, are a number of things. First, there are two months for Herzog to hopefully pull off some kind of compromise. I think the biggest pressure on uh, Netanyahu is going to be from, is already from the military. Uh, 1,100 reservists already saying they don't want to serve, including 400 Air Force uh, reservists. That's, that's likely to grow. And that is the one area, if you think back to when he postponed his uh, plan initially, that's the one area that really gets to him because he calls himself the security prime minister. So that's likely to increase the pressure on him. Of course, the White House is going to increase its own pressure uh, and uh, there'll be internal pressure as well. There's already a crack inside the Likud uh, majority party because the religious party seeing that this passed immediately turned around and said, we want legislation that anybody who's studying in a, in a seminary is the equivalent of somebody fighting at the front. And that really upset a lot of Likud members. So there's going to be pressure there. So let's wait and see. This is this is far from over. Uh, but right now, uh, the demonstrations are going to continue. The pressure is going to continue. And yes, as you said, this is really alienating the United States. Uh, Netanyahu didn't seem to care about the Democratic Party, except that there's a Democratic president and a Democratic majority in the Senate. Who knows what the next election will be like? But for the next couple of years, the evangelicals have zero influence in the White House. And Netanyahu needs to think about that. Indeed. Thanks very much, Dove. Really appreciate it. Hope you have a great weekend and a great week. And look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye.
Uh, guys, uh, thank you very much uh, for your patience. We were a little bit out of order uh, there. Uh, Jim, I want to uh, shift uh, to the question of the war. Uh, there's a Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, that is now on. Maybe yes, maybe no. Uh, the United States has a tendency of declaring these things and then, and then caveating them. I don't know why we can't just keep our mouth shut and let the Ukrainians do the talking. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, it looks like the Ukrainians announced that they had taken an important town. They're moving uh, in the direction of Mariupol, uh, it looks like, but in the face of very fierce uh, Russian resistance and also very clever Russian uh, defenses. Another great piece uh, by The Economist, but a number of other publications discussing you know, mines on mines and mobile uh, defenses, which uh, the Russians uh, are using, even if there's no defense in the rear areas. Uh, uh, for uh, example, R Russians are using the opportunity to strike Ukrainian cities, as well as a very risky move of hitting the grain terminal on the Ukrainian side of the Danube coming perilously close uh, to, uh, you know, if that missile had gone a little bit long, it would have ended up in Romania, which would not have been good. Uh, we um, are sending over some more air and missile defenses, but not necessarily, uh, and certainly not any more ATACMs, even if the Ukrainians are using uh, their French and, and British uh, or I should say they're British and then soon French Storm Shadow uh, long-range precision cruise missiles as well. Give us an update on where we stand right now and sort of what, what has to be next uh, from, from your standpoint if the Ukrainians are going to prove successful uh, in this counteroffensive. Well, let, let me add to the discussion about the Buy America provision. Uh, surprise. Uh, oh, that's I right. I should, to... should have asked you about that because you've lived the scars of that for decades. You used to be a lot taller than you are now, Jim. I know. I know. And and like Dove said, this is, you know, Buy America has been around a long time. Uh, and there's been times when we needed something like that. But there's times when the cost is much worse than the than what we get out of it. But, I, but the point I want to make is that Remember a couple of months ago when the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, was put out there, there was Buy America there, too. And that caused a big kerfuffle uh, with the Europeans. And, of course, they're now reacting to it by passing their own, uh, you know, legislation and their own approaches to dealing with uh, this, you know, Buy America. And supposedly both sides are talking. But to heap on top of that, uh, Buy America, again, is uh, just a footstomp uh, dove and michael i just think this is this is just horrible and um i hope that they can drop that or deal with it uh but the timing is truly awful but but that aside on the offensive you know just to make the point that this offensive has been going on for a while and um and i think the u.s it's not really the u.s that has been uh, declaring it offensive or not it's really been the media and um and people running around uh, yelling and screaming about the offensive. And some of it has, has been political, too. It's been on the Hill. When are they going to have their offensive? It's got to work, et cetera, et cetera. So I'll give Ukraine credit is that they are they are moving forward prudently, um, considering um, the what they're having to deal with. We've talked about mines and uh, trenches and all the various defensive uh, arrangements that the Russians have made, keeping in mind that the... Uh, the, that Ukraine does not have air support. You know, Ukraine does not have attack helicopters. Ukraine does not have a massive amount of, of rollers and that kind of thing that you need to deal with uh, mines. Um, and it's bloody hell. They are losing a lot of people. And, you know, they've been losing things like Bradley's and, uh, and other kinds of armored vehicles, too. So, so this offensive has been going on. They've been trying to find that weak spot in the line. And it sounds like, uh, uh, Vago, as you said, it sounds like they might have found an area where um, they, they might be able to, to break through a bit. We'll have to wait and see. Um, the, the, the feeling has been that they are pretty brittle in the rear area, that once you break through the obstacles, there's not a lot of reserve forces that are going to come roaring down on top of you. Uh, and certainly those forces that do come are not, not uh, as well equipped as they might have been a year ago. But, um, but, 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 I, but I think we can be hopeful that we're going to start to see some movement. Everyone should also keep in mind, though, that, that the kind of movement we'll see is not the movement that we saw last summer. Uh, again, the Kharkiv, that was a great opportunity for Ukraine. They exploited it well. Um, the Russians fled the scene in a lot of ways. Um, but I'm not sure we're going to see that kind of thing now, even with the breakthrough. We'll just have to have to see. But let's keep our expectations were lower where they need to be as we watch what happens as they begin to commit now. The Ukraine begins to commit this trained reserve uh, as well as uh, the, um, 
the uh, Leopard Twos and uh, Strikers and other things that have been waiting there for a breakout uh, to potentially happen. So, so that's 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 out there. One last point, um, if I could, Vago, and that is, you know, we talk about these troops having been trained uh, in the West now for a couple of months. This isn't exactly five years of training um, necessarily, but it's been some training on combined arms maneuver and this type of thing, which is rudimentary training, if you will. So I think we can be glad that they've had some training, but we shouldn't expect miracles when it comes to seeing uh, the Ukrainian uh, military act like a, a military in the West or in the US particularly, combined arms maneuver approach that, 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 we, have, that we see the US is capable of. Uh, the training hasn't gone that far and the Ukraine experience doesn't necessarily lend itself to that now. So let's, we have to keep our expectations low a bit as well. I mean, not low, but certainly reduce our expectations in what we think that Western uh, trained, Western equipped units will be able to pull off. I think they'll pull off better than they would have in the past, um, but still let's, let's, let's keep our expectations in check and just, uh, you know, for God's sake, let's keep the ammunition and the uh, mine clearing equipment and the, uh, for God's sake, attack them, please, and try to get the F-16s as soon as we can. That's a long, still a long ball, but, but they need that air support. They need that air defense. So we have to keep that, uh, the, the uh, equipment and the ammunition and that type of thing flowing and, and, uh, and just, you know, pray every night that they're able to, to advance. Um, there's a two-part uh, uh, question. One, is NATO as ready, especially in the wake of the Vilnius summit, um, to be able to, I mean, you were there and we're having these conversations both on and off uh, the record as a illustrious alumni. Um, I mean, is, is the alliance ready in the event that the Russians want to try something, either a miscalculation that ends up a weapon ends up hitting. I mean, we saw, for example, Russian missiles end up in Poland and Poland was very adult about that and said, hey, look, you know, this this happens. The Russians weren't deliberately attacking us, even if some folks were trying to make a bigger deal about it here. Is the alliance ready, A, uh, in the event that, you know, a, a missile strike ends up going long and, and hitting NATO territory? And the second question is, how does the alliance need to respond to what the Russians are doing, which is the destruction of grain supplies? We talked about this a little bit uh, last week. Uh, it, it looks like uh, the, the uh, you know, Putin is responding to pressure from African leaders saying, you know, pledging, I think, 50,000 tons of free grain. Ukrainians are shipping millions of tons of grain now, so I'm not necessarily sure what 50,000 tons of Russian grain are going to do. It's probably better than nothing. Uh, but last week, you know, discussed how this is irritating everybody. And Patrick, you pointed out it's also irritating the Chinese a little bit as well. Kind of walk us through, um, you know, where we sort of are right now. And is the alliance actually ready for anything the, the Russians would do? And what are ways the alliance can help? Alliance can help get grain out. Alliance can, can and should be doing to help Ukraine more. Well, I mean, those are important questions and I'm sure people are asking. And, is, and in terms of is NATO ready, I would say NATO has been in deep discussions about these things and trying to figure out what role could NATO have. I think we can't let the United Nations off the hook here. I mean, this is something in terms of food, in terms of food uh, shortages, in terms of uh, negotiations. That's something the UN has got to take the lead on. Um, and so first and foremost, how ready is the UN and engaged is the UN? And I think they are, obviously. Um, and so the ball is really in their court to deal with uh, with the, with the food. In terms of how ready is NATO in terms of a, uh, a, a missile or a you know spillover into an allied country, uh, you know I think NATO also acted very adult, and as did Poland, as you point out. They both uh, were very uh, mature about this and prudent in their approach to that missile incident that happened a number of months ago. And I think they'll be the same way with Romania should something happen there. So I, I think that uh, that was a, a great lesson learned uh, for NATO uh, in terms of how to handle these kinds of things. And I think they did a great job and I think they'll be ready, yes, to handle a, another spillover, assuming that's what it is. And that's, of course, the first thing you have to determine is what, what, what kind of what has happened here. And they and, you know, having a, a hip shot reaction is not the uh, is not the approach. And uh, and NATO did not do that. Neither did did Poland necessarily, although there was, was a lot of hue and cry about Article 5, but I think they, they worked past that. And I think that'd be the same thing with, 
with Romania. Now, in terms of what can NATO do with the food shortage, I think, number one, NATO needs to call out uh, probably more loudly the weaponization of food. This idea that um, Russia is going to give you know, food prizes to those nations that support them is crap. I mean, that's that's that, that, that I can't that, you know, that's just a war crime as far as I'm concerned. And and really, I think we have to be vocal about that. So those nations in the global south using that term um, are, are don't think that uh, understand that this is aimed at them, uh, whether they whether they, you know, certainly indirectly, but they're going to be the victims of using food as a weapon. Uh, and so NATO can certainly be more vocal. And so can the U.N. about this. Secondly, um, I think NATO might, because NATO is very good in logistics, uh, I think we've got to find another way to get the, uh, the grain out. And I know earlier on last year, they were looking at the Danube and trucking and, and there's, not, there's just nothing out there that's as good as shipping, unfortunately. Uh, but certainly, I think uh, we, can, we can see if we can find at least second best to try not to be beholden to the Russians in terms of holding back the food. We got to find another way, uh, and uh, and I think NATO can certainly help on that. And I'm sure it is, frankly. Uh, this isn't something they're not just sitting back, but we've got to we got to work that. In terms of escorting ships, and I know Vago, that's where you are. <laughs> I, I of, am. I am. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. And I would love to see it. I would love to see it. But but my my problem is this: if we're going to escort ships in the Black Sea, um, we're going to have uh, NATO warships in there. So not just the U.S., NATO warships in there when we're escorting ships. We have to be ready to fight the Russians uh, there on the Black Sea because they will test us. Uh, they've already been doing exercises and all this kind of thing, tromping around. That doesn't mean that we can't send ships into the Black Sea. That's our right, too. Of course, the Turks have something to say about that because right. they control the Bosphorus. But, but other than that, uh, that doesn't mean we stay out of the Black Sea and we don't let the Russians call the shots on terms of maritime on the Black Sea. But if we begin to escort uh, something along those lines, uh, we have to be ready to fight the Russians. And, and uh, are we ready to do that? Is, is this a gamble worth taking? I mean, do, but because it could be that we do escort and they don't do anything. Yeah, but they don't I, test us. They don't call our bluff. So I, I think, we have I, to decide that. I, I don't think you barrel uh, straight up the middle. Uh, right. You you can do this through three mile limits, 12 mile limits. I know I'm talking to two former Navy guys here. You, you can do this through territorial waters and basically be like you're you're literally going to be interfering with the territorial waters of a sovereign state. OK, it's one thing if you're doing this, you know, out at sea, presumably. Uh, but anyway, it would, it would certainly be, I, I think, uh, I think uh, interesting uh, to uh, discuss and um, make a great right. movie. It would make a, it would make a great movie, even even if a bit of a nail biter. But I think you know we, you have to assert freedom of navigation, and to me, it's it's a lot right. of the same thing. The Chinese could decide to you know we're going to declare all of the you know as they regularly do the waters around Taiwan are ours. Well, no, uh, not really, and we're you know making clear we're willing to fight for that. So if you're trying to make the more you know the equivalency argument, then you have to be ready to actually escalate in this case and actually test the guy. Um, uh, as, as necessary. Um, I just want to uh, remind our audience to check out our weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our, uh, our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervillo, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, uh, that I um, co-host each week uh, with JJ Gertler. Patrick, you've been uh, exceptionally uh, patient, and we really appreciate uh, the long journey uh, to trying to get here uh, and a lot of Asia-Pacific uh, news. Uh, I just wanted to start, uh, speaking of uh, both Russians and, and Chinese, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu, as well as top uh, Chinese officials, were in Pyongyang celebrating the 70th anniversary of the armistice that ended uh, the Korean War. Uh, they're also discussing military aid, given that North Korea is supplying Russia uh, with ammunition uh, and, and some advisors, uh, and that the Chinese are also providing military equipment that is useful to uh, the Russians. We, you know, we talk about whether or not small caliber arms ammunition uh, was sent over, but certainly body armor, thermal equipment, command and control gear. There's a lot of equipment that the Chinese apparently are sending as well. Uh, and everybody was in Pyongyang having a, a grand old time. From your standpoint, what does all of this mean? And what does it mean for the international community stepping up and actually exerting more pressure both on the Chinese uh, as well as uh, the North Koreans. Well, Vago, as you know, the 70th anniversary of the armistice that ended the fighting, but not the war, 
um, in on Korean Peninsula uh, is marked very differently in North Korea and with the Chinese and Russians than it is from the vantage point of the U.S. and our allies. So they're looking at this as a victory day and trying to tout that. Um, and they're on the on the reviewing stand uh, today. Literally, uh, Kim Jong Un uh, is 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 sandwiched in between um, Defense Minister Shoigu, Politburo uh, you know member. Uh, Politburo member Li Hongshu, um, or, or Hongzhong rather, Politburo member Li Hongzhong on his other side, um, essentially giving physical testament to their support for North Korea's unlawful ICBM nuclear programs. Uh, and meanwhile, they're also showcasing, and they had them flying around, uh, drones that looked a lot like uh, the MQ-9 Global Hawk, right. um, and they had them on parade. Um, and and that's on top of the you know taking Shoigu to the defense exhibition to see these weapons up close, and then to have a private meeting uh, where he had a letter from uh, Vladimir Putin um, indicating uh, gratitude to Kim Jong Un for his unwavering support for the special military operation in Ukraine. I think that uh, Shoigu is actually picking up on the supply chain from Prigozhin now that he is sidelined in Saint Petersburg and out of action from Ukraine with his Wagner Group. North Korea having provided ammunition last fall to the Wagner group for the war in Ukraine, uh, I think Shoigu is now there to try to, you know, figure out whether he can keep that supply chain going, get more from North Korea, and also provide North Korea with what it needs to continue to be a complete irritant to the United States and South Korea. I think uh, as well, the solidarity uh, among China, Russia, and North Korea is to bust the sanctions regime that the U.S. and the United Nations uh, have put in place. None of these three countries want the U.S. and its allies and friends or the international community writ large to interfere with their sense of self-aggrandizement and what they want to do in you know Europe, in, in Asia, uh, on the peninsula and around it. So um, this is a significant uh, meeting of the three of the four major revisionist powers operating today. Iran is not at this meeting, um, but at the same time. Um, you know, using the 70th anniversary of the Korean War armistice to elevate the message. I'm not sure it's elevating above uh, things that are happening elsewhere, but nonetheless, um, North Korea is having, a, you know, ha having a moment here, uh, even while they're holding a, an American private second class, Travis King, without uh, giving any indication of his future um, or even whereabouts, um, and still uh obstructing dialogue with the United States and South Korea. In fact, the defense minister of North Korea pointed to these weapon systems with the Russians there and said, look, there's no room for survival for the United States and its allies if they attack us. Um, and, uh, you know, this is pretty dramatic testimony to uh, the fact that North Korea is all military and no economy and no freedom. And, and you know, they're on the losing side so far of this 70 year, you know, 70 year armistice. Um, I, I should uh, also point out, right, that uh, uh, Russian pilots uh, were involved uh, in uh, the Korean War, as we've uh, since uh, learned, both helping uh, the North Koreans as well as, I believe, even helping the Chinese at the time. Uh, and, and we saw some of that, certainly, in terms of advisors and pilots and the like during the Vietnam War uh, as well. So even though yeah. folks want to say that we were not in direct conflict, actually, we, we really were, if you look at the history right. uh, of, of the Cold War. And we we so do... On. Right. And Baga, we do know from the from the Soviet archives, I mean, the, the, Stalin did not want a direct confrontation with the United States, which is why he didn't follow through with his promise of major arms going to the North Koreans, even though he greenlighted the attack. He clearly wanted, Rush, you know, Soviet Russian influence to be uh, sort of in and in, locked into the peninsula now and to block future U.S. and Japanese inroads. Um, but you're right. He provided pilots. He, he wanted a, a more plausible, deniable role, and he let the Chinese do the heavy fighting and dying uh, on behalf of the North Koreans. Um, let's uh, talk about some of the other uh, China and Asia Pacific uh, uh, headlines. Obviously, Quinn Kang, great piece you wrote in The Messenger uh, about that. We still don't know why he's been fired and replaced by Wang Yi. Uh, as Dove in our pre-game uh, pre uh, running week-long dialogue that we have for this program, uh, you know, Dove pointed out, it is interesting that somehow uh, Quinn Gang um, kept his titles, uh, which was kind of interesting. Uh, then we saw the administration really stand up and block John uh, Lee, uh, 
uh, the uh, Hong Kong's uh, chief executive from coming to the United States for a conference. And then astonishingly, the Hong Kong Supreme Court uh, found uh, in, in something that must annoy Lee as well as Beijing a lot, that the independence uh, Diddy uh, can actually remain uh, online and, and cannot be banned, uh, which was kind of interesting. Anyway, take this in any direction uh, you want. And you, you know, an interesting comment from the Japanese foreign minister as well about the sort of unprecedented challenges facing Japan and, and how the, this period is a very important one. Kind of take that uh, in any direction you want to bring the audience up to speed on all the important things that have been going on in, in what is a critically important region. Sure. And I would put most of the China developments under the banner of uh, the question of whether Xi Jinping's leadership is going well or whether he's really mishandling uh, a lot of issues, both at home and abroad. And this is brought out, in fact, in a Pew Research Center survey of people from 24 countries that was done this spring and just released, um, indicating that you know two thirds of people polled around the world in many countries uh, just think China's um, a problem. Uh, it's largely a negative view. Three quarters of them don't think they take their interests in account. Um, and so you come home to, let's take the Qinggang, the foreign minister being dismissed with no explanation still at this point, even though he has some digital uh, reappearance yesterday. Um, he, it, it's, it's a mystery that I think is I wrote as a black mark on Xi's leadership. You know, it was Zhou Enlai, the very first foreign minister of China, um, at the PRC, that is, who said that all diplomacy is a continuation of war by other means, reversing Clausewitz's famous dictum. And I think Qin's approach to political warfare probably differed from Xi's. He, Qin was, a, you know, Qin Gong is a more sophisticated approach uh, to international affairs. Um, and I think Xi's tending to be much more hardline. In fact, the new Japan white paper just out. This is the first Japan defense white paper since their new national security strategy issued last uh, year. Um, you know, not only calls China the greatest challenge, but it says that China may be uh, in, in sort of accelerating um, the push for world class military. This idea that their the PLA should be at least on a par, if not surpassing the U.S. by mid century. They may be elevating that and making it, uh, you know, a faster uh, timeline. Um, and by the way, in that white paper as well, Japan talks about how uh, Yanaguni Island and their Southwest Island chain is on the very front line, quote unquote, of a Taiwan contingency, suggesting that Japan could not be on the sidelines of a Taiwan contingency. That's an interesting, important statement of a Japan that continues to, to creep toward more normal uh, defense posture. Um, back to China. You know, we have the Hong Kong situation with John Lee. This is a, a former police officer who has happily uh, enacted a draconian law, national security law, who is now going after this, what he calls the street rats, meaning freedom loving you know, young people um, right. who are overseas and responsible for helping to promote democracy. Um, and so, yeah, blocking him from going to the APEC summit in San Francisco um, is it seems to be uh, you know uh, a logical step because he has taken Hong Kong from its former economic pinnacle down to its security nadir. Um, you know it's it's now a, a big security problem. It's not the attractive jewel in the crown for for China's economy. The opacity of of China's well here. You know talking about Qinggong and you know we don't know what's happened. Um, is reflected as well in the deputy commander of the PLA rocket force. He's been buried this weekend, and we're not sure why he died. Um, he died. You know, the, there was an announcement, a story in China that was quickly deleted. Um, and there were rumors hanging that he hanged himself because of a possible investigation of the PLA rocket force. And that's coming out at the same time that the PLA's equipment development department is being investigated for leaking information on projects and army units to help certain companies secure bids. So Xi Jinping's PLA is a work in progress. Um, let me shift over to where Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin uh, is uh, is really making uh, you know waves, good one, good waves I think uh, in the South Pacific and, and in Australia. Um, so he was in Papua New Guinea this week, in Port Moresby on the Coral Sea, where his father was, by the way, uh, in World War II. Um, and he is the first Secretary of Defense to visit Papua New Guinea. In fact, uh, it's interesting that President Macron is coming to Papua New Guinea uh, right afterward on his heels to talk about the new imperialism uh, of, you know, essentially suggesting China's uh, encroachment into the Pacific is a, is a threat to the region. 
But anyway, uh, Secretary Austin uh, touting this new uh, defense cooperation agreement we have, he says it's not about permanent bases. It's about a long-term relationship with Papua New Guinea and things like a new shipwriter agreement. It's going to allow PNG personnel aboard uh, Coast Guard ships. In fact, we've got a cutter coming in a few weeks to Papua New Guinea to start that process. Then Secretary Austin uh, in Brisbane, in Australia, for the Osmen uh, with his counterpart, Secretary Blinken, uh, with Secretary Blinken and their counterparts, uh, Richard Marles and Penny Wong. And Richard Marles and, and Secretary Austin talked about uh, not just AUKUS and the importance of that, but about integrating Japan. It's going to be increasingly part of everything they do on defense. Very important statements they're making uh, on this issue, even while we have a letter this week from 23 Republican senators, including Senate leader Mitch McConnell, threatening the AUKUS submarine transfer of the U.S. Virginia class attack subs to Australia unless the U.S. supports a doubling of our industrial capacity, which is uh, not in the cards financially, I think, right now. But at the same time, there's widespread support and recognitions, surely, for the need for that. So I don't think this is going to stop AUKUS, but they're certainly putting down a marker on this issue. Uh, finally, I mentioned in Southeast Asia, um, it's worth noting that Hun Sen, after nearly 40 years uh, as the prime minister of Cambodia, having taken Cambodia closer to the China camp, has installed his son uh, as the prime minister, even while he retains key positions in terms of the party and the Senate. Uh, it's interesting because his son graduated from the U.S. Military Academy. And so there are a lot of interesting relations there that we hope will play out over time. Uh, it, it is uh, absolutely a fascinating uh, development. You normally don't have a West Pointer uh, who is uh, appointed by his dad, who's a dictator, presumably to continue being <laughs> uh, a dictator. Um, uh, Michael, uh, let me go to you because we're about uh, to end, but I, I, I need to get back to you and ask you about support for uh, a Ukraine uh, supplemental. Uh, administration uh, just gave another $400 million dollars uh, there was always a little bit of a question about whether or not Congress was going to hold firm, in part because of Freedom Caucus and a number of other folks who want to pull uh, support for Ukraine. Uh, from your perspective, how, you know, you had a dinner with a very senior lawmaker uh, last night and some of the senior uh, leadership uh, in uh, the GOP. Give us your sense on whether or not um, Congress will continue to be supportive and there will be the financial uh, support and indeed a willingness to escalate uh, the degree of aid that Washington should be providing uh, Ukraine? So, look, uh, my conversations last night were very positive on this front. Uh, I think we're, we're still not there yet, but also the administration has not asked for Ukraine supplemental. Uh, you know, look, we see overwhelming bipartisan support for Ukraine in the Senate, again, expressed in the NDAA as well, that the number for defense is not sufficient, not only for us, but we're also going to need additional money for Ukraine. As I mentioned previously, Ken Calvert, the chair's defense appropriations subcommittee in the House, was asking for Ukraine supplemental uh, earlier this year. Uh, again, I think the White House misread the politics uh, and the calendar. So now um, it's up to the administration to center that request and get this conversation started. There is not only overwhelming bipartisan support in the Senate for Ukraine, but there still remains strong bipartisan support uh, in the House. Uh, I think that they're going to have to nuance it a little bit and call it more of a China supplemental. I mean, that's the, the mantra now. But as Mike Gallagher, who chairs the, the Select Committee on China, has said that China and, uh, and, and the war in Ukraine are linked. Uh, you know, we, right. So I, I think that the case can be made, and I still am optimistic uh, that it will be made. And by the end of the year, we will see a supplemental for Ukraine. Uh, and uh, Mike uh, is uh, one of the people, obviously, who, who, who gets it uh, in terms of uh, the importance and, and the cross-connect between these two uh, crises. Uh, guys, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Hope you all have uh, a terrific weekend uh, and a great week and look forward to seeing you back on again next week, even if uh, the audience will be full of much lamentations, Michael, uh, that you will not be joining us over the next couple of weeks, but you remain on standby, God forbid, uh, if there's a reason uh, to have you on. So bon voyage and hope you and the family have a great uh, time off. Jim and Patrick, thank you very, very much. Dove, thank you. And a very special thanks to our audience uh, for joining us. And a very special thanks to Bell for their generous 
sponsorship that makes this program possible. Uh, please tune in on Sunday for the Business Roundtable. We've certainly got a lot to discuss, uh, given uh, earnings as well as Northrop Grumman's surprise disclosure that it will not be playing a prime contractor role on the Next Generation Air Dominance Program. We'll be discussing that and much, much more. In the meantime, hope everybody has a great day and a great weekend, and we'll see you again on Sunday. Thanks very much. All the best.